How's everybody doing this morning? Y'all sound good, look good, all the good stuff. Uh, a lot of good stuff going on. You heard some of that stuff and uh, Super Bowl watch party tonight. Tomorrow morning, I don't know if you've seen on social media, Asbury College is in the middle of a revival. They had their chapel there Wednesday, and they've been going ever since with just prayer and worship all day long. People just coming off the streets and repenting of sin and getting saved. And me and actually uh, Doug Ferris, Pastor Doug Ferris, Underwood Baptist, Pastor Dylan Davis, I think Pastor Scott Silcox are actually driving up tomorrow just to go experience what God is doing there. So it sounds like a, a start of a joke, a Baptist, a charismatic. If we can find a Catholic, we can just make it all work right out. Um, so just be praying for us. We're going to be going up there and hanging out together uh, for the next two days. Um, a lot of good stuff going on here. Bible's turn to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to try to get through this sermon as quickly as possible. Luke chapter 1 as we continue the Apostles' Creed. And today we're going to dig into really why the virgin birth matters. Why it's the linchpin of the gospel. Why it's such a huge deal and why it's many times overlooked. And I don't know about you, I don't watch much TV. If I watch TV, it's usually sports. But I didn't watch the Grammys last week. But I saw immediately just the results of the Grammy. And Sam Smith and his performance stressed as a devil. And you had all this perversion and, and celebrating sexuality and celebrating demonology. And then you had another performance that was a, a replica of the Lord's Supper. And just all this stuff. And it just reminded me that our world is a really broken place. It is full of evil. It's full of injustices like the Tyree Nichols killing in Memphis a couple weeks ago. There's injustices that happen. There's poverty. There's violence. I read another story of a, a little girl who was 14 years old in New Jersey who committed suicide after she'd been jumped by some friends at school by four other 14-year-old girls and began to post and just wear her out on social media and Snapchat about how she's a loser and she deserved to die and all this other stuff. You've seen uh, threats of wars with China and Syria and Ukraine and all these other things. You see earthquakes and natural disasters like in Syria and where there's 28,000 people who just passed away this week. Like the world is a really broken place. It is broken. It's evil. It's got poverty. It's got sickness. It's got disease. It's got shame. It's got guilt. It's got injustice. It's got greed. It's got crime. It's got all this stuff. It is broken. It is completely broken. And that's the way it's been since Genesis chapter 3. That God did not create the world to be broken. He created it to be perfect. But in doing so, he planted Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them dominion. And once they took over, things started to fall apart. They wanted to rule by their own knowledge of good and evil rather than trusting in the relationship they had with God their Father. And since then, we've been living in a Genesis chapter 3 world where we let the enemy convince us to live life through our own eyes and our own desires and what we want. And so when you see the brokenness in the world, you see a Genesis chapter 3 world. That's why the gospel is actually four parts. It's God created everything perfect. And in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, if we could go back, we would. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God created everything perfect. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, there's a fall that takes place where Adam and Eve choose to go their own way and do what they want to do. And since chapter 3, we're all living in this chapter 3 world. Until Jesus comes, there's redemption through the blood of Jesus that starts this new journey towards perfection or restoration where God will show up and set up his throne on earth to make it like Genesis 1 and 2 again. That is where we're at. We are in between redemption and restoration. We are still in a Genesis 3 world. And that's what makes the virgin birth that more beautiful is that God came to show up in the middle of our crime, our greed, 
our selfishness, our injustices, our sickness, our disease, our poverty, our celebration of football and Super Bowl Sunday. He decided to show up in the mess that we created. He decided to show up in the middle of the Grammys. He decided to show up on earth in our brokenness. And it says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word favor is actually the word charis, which is the word grace. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him, call his name Jesus. In the book of Matthew, it says, you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. For he will be great and he will love the Lord and the Lord God. He'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the Lord, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age also. You know, that's not a good way to be defined by the Bible. Just, you know, the old woman. Conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, usually we only hear this scripture at Christmas time. At Christmas, we'll read Luke chapter one on Christmas day or you know, maybe Christmas Eve or a Christmas series. But this scripture is vitally important because it begins the journey of Jesus as our savior, as our Lord. It just begins the journey of the gospel that brings us salvation. And it has supernatural, there's angels involved, there's virgin birth, there's angels talking, there's miracles happening, there's all these things. And what's happening is you're seeing that God is not okay or God is not content with just sitting up in heaven watching his people suffer. He's not okay with it. He's not okay sitting up in heaven thinking, okay, they messed up. We'll just start over. He's not okay with looking down our pain. He's not okay looking down into our suffering. He's not okay looking down. God is not a God who looks down on his people. He's a God that comes to his people. He's not a God that just scurries people around, making them come and find a way to get to him. When you look at every religion in the world, they're all religions based on works that make you work really hard to find God. They make it really hard to discover enlightenment. You have to do this and this and this just to get to God or take a journey or a pilgrimage to Mecca or take this journey or do this good deed and do this good deed. And maybe if you do enough good deeds, you'll wipe out all the bad deeds and then maybe you can get to God. See, religion is about trying to get to God. But Christianity is about God getting to you. And since we couldn't get to God, that's what the, old, the whole Old Testament was. The people, the believers trying to get to God and trying to find a way to work hard enough and try to worship hard enough to get to God. But since we couldn't get to heaven, since we couldn't get to God, God decided to come to us. 
That's what the virgin birth is really about. We couldn't get to him, so he came to us. That is what incarnation means. The doctrine of incarnation is simply since we couldn't get to our God, our God came to us. You will not find that in Islam. You will not find that in Buddhism. You will not find that in New Age. You will not find that anywhere else in the universe. We are the only people that serve a God that's willing to come near to us. That is the doctrine of incarnation. It says this theologically. The doctrine of incarnation teaches that through the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Son has become fully man in time in order to die for the sins of humanity and defeat death by the power of his resurrection. He is a God that became like us so we could become like him. He's a God that became like us so we could become like him. C.S. Lewis said the, the son of God became like man so man could become like the son of God. Like that, That's mind-blowing that he was willing to leave the throne to come to earth. He was willing to leave golden streets to walk streets of dirt and filth. He was willing to leave the mansion in heaven to come to a manger on earth. He was willing to leave continual worship to come to betrayal and mocking here on earth. He was willing to leave his father so he could come down to earth around people who would continually betray him and leave him and forsake him. He was willing to leave everything to come near to us. It makes no sense in the natural origin. One of the original church fathers, he called it this the self-miniaturation of God, meaning he made himself small, and he describes this analogy like this. He says, there was this village, and there was a statue in the middle of this village. But the statue was so big, no one could actually tell what the statue was. Like they could see a foot or a toe, and maybe a leg, but it was so big it was too high to describe. It was too far and too wide to actually see. No one could see the whole statue at one time. So they would go around the statue trying to find a way to see what it really was, but they couldn't determine it because it was so big. And so until one artist creative decided to make a smaller version of the statue, he took this huge statue and he brought it down to this miniature version of the statue so everyone could see who the statue was actually trying to honor. And Orton said, that's like the incarnation. That God is so big that no one can see him for who he truly is. You could walk around him forever and ever, kind of like the angels saying, holy, holy. You can keep walking, but you can't really see who he is. So he, he made himself small enough that in Colossians 1, it says he's the image of the invisible God. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, he's the exact imprint and nature of God. That God was willing to make himself small just so we could see who he truly was. Other authors have tried other things. You know, there's another thing. Uh, C.S. Lewis said he was like becoming like a dog. Now, I love my dog. You may not like your dog. I love my dog. I hate Toya's dog and I hate the kid's dog. But I love my dog. You know, my dog, many times I'm sitting in my reading chair. He'll sit right there in my reading chair. If I'm in the truck, he tries to jump in the truck. He wants to go everywhere. I love my dog. But it would be really hard for me. If, you know, he was sick or so, he was depressed or something was wrong with my dog. And the only way for me to help him was for me to become a dog in order to help him. I'd have to leave my air conditioning. I'd have to leave my, my Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I'd have to leave my Bunyan's barbecue. I'd have to leave my church. I'd have to leave 
music, arts, TV, creativity, have to leave my family, have to leave all these incredible things in order to be a dog, to be in the dirt and eat nasty dog food and to be mistreated by people and have to ride in the back seat and put my head out the window just to get air conditioning. I'd, I'd hate to do that. But God decided to lower himself to the lowest of his creation in order to heal and save his creation. He left his lifestyle in heaven. He left his perfection in heaven. He left his relationship with heaven. He left his treasures in heaven. He left the beauty of heaven. He left his riches in heaven to come to earth in the lowest of low, born of a young virgin girl who was impoverished in a manger on the backside of the desert, only to live a life he didn't have a home. He said, even foxes have places to live. I don't have a place to lay my head. To go through complete nothingness in order to save you and I. And it's supernatural. No other God is going to become natural. He has the super, but he adds the natural to it. That's what makes it supernatural. In the story, there's angels who are communicating to Mary. There's angels communicating to Elizabeth. There's the virgin birth, the Holy Spirit coming upon her and helping her conceive a child. It's supernatural. In our day and age, we like to think of everything supernatural except for Christianity. Our movies are supernatural. Our comic books are supernatural. The Grammys are supernatural. But when you get in the church world, we try to push all those things away, and we just want the Bible. Reinhard Bonnke said this way, Christianity is either supernatural or it's nothing at all. It's either supernatural or it's nothing at all. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are saved, you are already weird enough as it is. You already believe in so much supernatural, everyone outside the walls of this place think you're kooky anyway. You say, well, I'm not. I'm just a Bible believer. I don't believe in those gifts of the Spirit or, you know, the baptism. I don't believe in any of that. Really? You believe that this 14-year-old virgin girl talked to an angel, and the angel told her she was going to have a baby as a virgin and never have sex with her husband and she was conceived, conceived this baby of a spirit. And she conceives that baby of a spirit. Then she has the baby, and there's angels surrounding the baby as he's born. I don't know what hospital your kids were born, but there are no angels, just nurses. He lives his life for 30 years. Then he's tempted in the desert, not by magazines or TV or the Grammys. He's tempted by the devil himself for 40 days and 40 nights. He leaves, he's baptized. And as he's baptized, there's a voice from heaven, supernatural, says, this is my son. That's supernatural. The dove of heaven falls upon him and remains on him. That's supernatural. Then he begins healing diseases and lepers and watching the blind eyes open and the deaf ears open. It's all supernatural. Then he stands before Pilate without any sin in his life. They put him in the dungeon, basically. They want to crucify him. Three days later, the tomb is empty. He's resurrected. He walks around showing people holes in his hands, and then he ascends up to heaven with no plane, no rocket, and no Chinese balloons. It's all supernatural. All of it's supernatural. Then as believers who are weak and doubting everything, all of a sudden go wait in an upper room for 
50 days after Pentecost. In 10 days as they're there, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They start speaking in spiritual language and every person, no matter what language they had, could hear what they were saying. They started getting saved. Then they start walking through town. Their shadows begin to heal people. They can lay their hands on napkins, send the napkins, the napkins heal people. They're casting out demons, all this stuff from people who were just saying they didn't even know who Jesus was. All the while they're saying he's going to return again. He's going to return again. Christianity is, you, if you believe Jesus is Savior, you're already a little weird. It's supernatural. Everything about it is supernatural. If you're saved, you believe you are going to hell, but now you're going to heaven. That's supernatural. It's all supernatural. And the virgin birth is this linchpin of the supernatural facet of the gospel. Because if you remove the virgin birth, you remove the super from the natural. And now you have a savior who can teach you some good morals, who can show you how to live life in, a, in a, maybe a higher level, but he can't be the son of God because then he'd be the son of man. And so what's happening in our culture, there's an attack on everything supernatural, but it's specifically the virgin birth. Because if we can make Jesus just a man, he doesn't have the ability to rule or reign over me as Lord. I can look at him as Savior. I can say he's love. I can say he's a good teacher. I can say he's a good instructor. I can try to live my life like he's some spiritual guru. But without the virgin birth, I lose the divinity of Jesus. And he loses his power in my life. And you're seeing it. There's all types of, if you know history at all, Thomas Jefferson created his own Bible called the Jeffersonian Bible. The Jeffersonian Bible, in his older age, he started cutting out pieces of the Bible and pasting them onto new sheets of paper. But he cut out anything that had any remote reference to the supernatural. Cut out the virgin birth. He cut out the angels. He cut out the resurrection. He cut out all of it except for just the teachings of Jesus. You say, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal. Yeah, he's one of the founders of America. And I think since then, we've all been trying to cut out the pieces of the Bible we don't like. And we cut out the pieces that, I just want Jesus to be a great teacher. And see, the world will see him as a great teacher, but they don't see him as the son of God. See, if he's son of God, it changes the perspective that he has. You see what Rob Bell, some of you know who Rob Bell was, a pastor. Now he's an Oprah a lot. He talks about, he says, if Jesus had a biological father, and we can somehow find his tomb or his grave, and we do a DNA test, and we find out that Jesus had a biological father, it really wouldn't change anything of our faith, because our faith is more by how you live than the virgin birth. I will tell you, there's nothing further from the truth. That if you take away the virgin birth, the whole gospel falls apart. Secondly, the gospel is not about how you live because Jesus is some great teacher. It's about dying to yourself and being born again. I can't be, see, when you realize salvation is I'm going to be born of the spirit just like Jesus is born of the spirit. I have to go from one life to a new life. The gospel is not about how you live your life. It's about you losing your life to pick up the life of Jesus. And it changes. That's why the, the virgin birth is this linchpin. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you lose everything else that has to do with the gospel. Everything. That's why liberal Christianity is promoting Jesus as teacher, but not Jesus as Lord. 
That's why they're promoting, removing the virgin birth and saying, you know what, that's just too much. No, it's not too much. It's just enough. So I want to give you just real quick a couple of reasons why the virgin birth is eternally, not vitally, eternally important to your salvation. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, said, And God the Word was truly born of the virgin, having clothed himself with a body of like passions with her own. He who forms all men in the womb was himself really in the womb and made for himself a body of the seed of the virgin, but without any intercourse of man. So here, real quick, here they are. Number one, the virgin birth is a sign that Jesus is Messiah. It's a sign. It was prophesied. He will be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and it shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophets, the believers were looking for a person born of a virgin. It's the sign that he is who he said he is. Number two, the virgin birth affirms the truth of Scripture. Affirms the truth. If the virgin birth's not true, then the whole Bible falls apart. All of it. The Old Testament, the New Testament, no longer can Jesus be a, a, a good teacher because now he's a liar. And everything he teaches would be a lie. It affirms the truth of Scripture, and without it, Scripture falls completely apart. Number three, the virgin birth confirms the divinity of Jesus. That's what makes him the son of God. That's what makes him Jesus, God the son. It's what makes him supernatural. It's what makes him have a connection to heaven. It's what makes him divine. It's what makes him deity. If you don't believe me, even the Quran confirms the divinity of Jesus. If you know my testimony, I was an atheist, agnostic, whatever word you want to call it. I read the Quran a couple of times. And in the Quran, in Surah 19, which is their chapters, it says, How can I have a son, talking about Mary, when no man has touched me and I was never unchaste? And he said, the angel talking to Mary, Thus said your Lord, it is easy for me and will make him a sign for humanity and mercy from us. You know what's sad about that? is you have Christians who don't believe in the virgin birth, but Muslims do. You have Christians that question the virgin birth, but Islam validates the birth. It validates the fact that Jesus is divine in every way. Number four, the virgin birth reminds us of Jesus' humanity, that he can understand you because he was born like you. He's lived like you. He was a toddler. He was a teenager. He was a young adult. He was an adult. He faced betrayal. He faced mocking. He faced pain. He faced suffering. He faced in-laws. He faced everything. All of it he faced. Number five, the virgin birth breaks the cycle of sinfulness in humanity. Without the virgin birth, sin would have continued through the bloodline of Joseph into Jesus. And he wouldn't have been born sinless. He wouldn't have been born holy. He wouldn't have been born righteous. He would have been born with the seed of sin from Adam in him. In Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so it spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over, the, over those sinning was not like the tr transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Meaning that when you realize your sin nature is transferred from the father into the children's. 
that when you were born, you were conceived, your father's sin nature, I believe his propensities of sin, it says in the Bible, up to seven generations of sin was transferred from your daddy to you, which means Father's Day takes on a whole new meaning. Thanks, Dad, for the lust. Thanks, Dad, for the hatred. Thanks, Dad, for the bitterness. It takes on a whole new meaning. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they took on, they corrupted their holy nature. And every time they had kids, they began to multiply the fall. And it went from every generation, every generation, every generation, every generation, every generation, every generation, every generation to woo. And then it stops because all of a sudden, somebody's born of a virgin. He's born without this corrupted DNA. He's born without this corrupted nature. He's born without this sin nature that had been passed on from Adam, our forefather, all the way to this point. And this Jesus, who now doesn't have this sin nature, has the nature of his heavenly father, the Holy Spirit, has this nature. So he breaks the cycle of sin. So now finally somebody's born without sin nature, and he lives his entire life without sinning. So he can go to the cross with perfect, holy Blood, and he can say, you can be born again with a new nature if you just confess my blood and I can wash you. Now you'll be born of the Spirit, John chapter 3. It breaks the cycle. And so if there's no virgin birth, the cycle still continues. The next one is the virgin birth establishes a new family lineage. Thank God that once you say yes to Jesus, you become part of his family. New spiritual DNA, new family, a new father in heaven, not your earthly father, not your sinful father. Now you have a heavenly father who now loves you unconditionally because you have a new family DNA. The virgin birth initiates new spiritual inheritances. In Ephesians 1, he says they're imperishable. They're undefiled. Meaning why? My dad is going to leave me probably nothing. But Jesus is leaving me everything. Why? Because now I'm part of the family. And I'm only part of the family because he was born of a virgin and let me have access to his family instead of my family. Next one, the, the virgin birth illustrates the nature of grace. It illustrates it. Why? Mary did nothing, nothing to earn the right to conceive the Son of God. She did nothing. It's not like she worked away. It's not like she was trying to earn the rights. It's not like there's a beauty contest. It was like the bachelor read. There was no way. God just said, listen, highly favored one. You have found favor, which is the word grace. You have found grace with God, which is an illustration of our new birth. You don't earn your salvation. You don't earn the right to be born again. But by grace, he initiates it. And by grace, you receive it. And by grace, you say, let it be to me according to your word. And it starts this conception of the Holy Spirit in you that gives you a new birth and a new right to be the family of God. It's the nature of grace. That's why it's vitally important. The gospel hinges on the virgin birth. And as Mary is having this conversation with the angels, they're going back and forth. Real quick, there's three things I see that I think are vitally important. Number one is this, is God is not limited by your limitations. He is not limited by whatever your limitations are. She says, I'm a virgin, how can this be? He says, nothing is impossible with God. How many of us, even as they were talking to worship, how many of you, when you come to God, you come to God with your limitations and you superimpose your limitations onto what God can do? God is telling her, you are going to have a baby. God, 
I, God, I don't know if you know this or not, but you know, this is a little embarrassing. I've never been with a man before. Perfect. I'm looking for somebody with some limitations. So I can show you that I'm limitless. And when you come to God with your limitations, whether it's whatever it may be, Moses, oh, you know, God, I, I'm not able to speak, or, or Jeremiah's like, I don't know about this. Or, the whole Bible's full of these people coming to God with their limitations, and they try to place their limitations on a limitless God. Let me help you understand. If you place your limitations on God, you don't hurt God, you just hurt yourself. You're building him a box for what he can do in your life. Oh, God, I've been married twice before. I, you know, I just don't know if I'm... No, no, you're already placing God in the box saying he can't restore what has been broken in the past. Well, God, I know you're healing God, but, you know, I, this is my second route through chemo, my second route through cancer. You're already putting God in a box. Well, God, you don't know what I've been through. I've been through this, I've been through that. You don't know how far I've run away from you, how deep I've been in sin. What you're already, you're putting God in the box. You cannot impose your limitations upon a limitless God. Even in 2 Corinthians, it says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. How many of you have boasted about your weaknesses? To be honest, pride is the opposite. We boast about our strengths. We boast about what we can do. Here it says, no, his power is made known in your weakness. Or his limit, limitlessness is made known through your limitations. In the Bible, you see it over and over again. Whether it's Moses who could speak, whether it's Gideon who's arguing with God, saying, I'm the least of my tribe. It's almost like God wanted to say, listen, your inadequacies will display my adequacies. Whether it's Jonah running away from God in rebellion, the prodigal son running away from God, Peter denying Jesus, Paul persecuted Christians. The difference between your ability and your calling is the grace of God. Remember, I joke with our kids. That I grew up, I grew up in a really tough environment early on, pretty much a whole life. I'm still in a tough environment. Toy treats me like junk. <laughs> I didn't start speaking until I was about four years old. And so I had to go to kindergarten. I was in speech class from kindergarten all the way through elementary school because I couldn't pronounce words. I still can't pronounce words good. I just, I just talk faster so you don't know what I'm not saying. The first time I ever I would come on staff at the church in North Nashville, I'd never spoken publicly before. I'd never been to seminary or Bible college. Had to do the announcements, and I couldn't get through the announcements. I'm literally just trying to read the bulletin, and I'm shaking, and I can't get the words out. And I had flashbacks of when I was in speech class because I couldn't pronounce the words. And then I think about every, every morning when I'm praying for Sunday morning, I start thinking that it's my limitations that allow God to be limitless in my life. It's my weakness. I may not be able to speak clearly or boldly or as well as I want to, but it's not about the words you speak. It's about the anointing that flows out of you. And your anointing flows out of your weakness, not out of your strengths. And so when she says, how could this be? I'm a virgin. He says, perfect. I don't know what your limitations are, but it's a perfect opportunity for the limitless God to display his grace to those around you and finally use you. He don't want to use your strengths. If you use your strengths, you get proud. But if you use your weaknesses, he gets glory. 
Number two, God doesn't move away from brokenness. He moves towards brokenness. In religion is this whole scheme of man to make us believe that when you mess up, God moves away. That's what religion teaches us. I don't know what churches y'all went to. But when you sin, oh, God is angry, God is mad, God is running away from you. And religion deceives us into thinking that every time we mess up, God's, oh, my, I didn't know that was going to happen. I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't know Adam and Eve, I didn't know this is going to happen. And it's almost like God's going to cover his eyes. Do you realize God has never covered his eyes? During the Grammys, you may have covered your eyes. God didn't cover his eyes. He's never once not been present. And so when we have a religious mindset, we think that God is this God who stays close and we're doing really good, but as soon as we mess up, he's just running away. It's the opposite. God moves towards our brokenness. The virgin birth shows us that God's not trying to get away from us. He's trying to get to us. That even in the brokenness of a world, he's coming to us. Even with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, if I find a hundred righteous, will you, will you save the city? Yes. Couldn't find a hundred. If I find 50, yes. If I find 10, he said, if I can find one. God is always looking for a way to save people. Adam and Eve, when they fell in the garden, they were ashamed. They were guilty because of religious mindset. They're covering themselves up. They're hiding from God. But God was not hiding from them. God is in their midst. He's calling out to Adam. He's not saying, what did you do? Why did you do that? He's not like some overbearing parent who's just angry you messed up. He's not, what sin did you commit? He's going through the Ten Commandments. Mark, what did you do? No, his first question was this, where are you? And God was right there in the midst of their sin and their brokenness. God's first priority is not checking off the list. It's proximity and relationship with his presence. He is a God that moves into our brokenness. And last but not least, grace is what makes the impossible possible. Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And God says, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And when he comes upon you, you'll conceive. You'll make his name Jesus. Or Matthew, you'll Emmanuel, God with us in our brokenness. And when he does that, you have this baby. And she says, wow, how can this be? He says, with all things, with God, they are possible. Grace is the difference between the natural and the supernatural. Grace is the difference between what you can do and what God can do. Grace is when you find favor with God for him to make up the difference between your weaknesses and his ability. Grace is the difference between your limits and his limitlessness. Grace fills in the gap. It's the empowering favor and presence of God in your life. It's not just the amazing grace song that gets you saved. It's what gets you saved. It's what keeps you saved. It's what helps you overcome temptation. It's what brings you life when you don't have life around you. Grace makes up the difference. It's what makes the impossible seem possible. Grace turns tombs into gardens. Grace turns pain into healing. Grace turns tests into testimonies. Grace turns sickness into healing. Grace turns death into life. Grace turns deserts into rivers. Grace turns enemies to friends. Grace turns hopelessness into hope. Grace turns sinners into saints. Grace is what makes what seems impossible possible.
And it is the linchpin of our salvation. So why does the virgin birth matter? Because without it, the whole divinity of Jesus crumbles to the ground. Without it, we don't have a God that joins us in our brokenness to give us hope to get out of our brokenness. And without it, grace isn't grace. If you would, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. If I can our, our prayer team come forward too. Just every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't, you know, there's always tons of different backgrounds in the room we gather on Sunday mornings. And I know there's people here that maybe believe in the virgin birth, maybe don't believe in the virgin birth. But I'll tell you, you can't be saved without the virgin birth. Like it's impossible. Because without the virgin birth, his blood is not worthy or valuable enough to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Without the virgin birth, you don't have a God that comes near to you. You only have a religion that's trying to get you to God. Without the virgin birth, you don't have a grace that initiates a new birth. You just have a, a system of good works church attendance and giving and serving the virgin birth is the linchpin that keeps the gospel the gospel so maybe you're here this morning maybe you know maybe you've never really placed your trust in Jesus as the born of a virgin sinless sacrifice of God himself for your sins I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you say, you know what, God is working on your heart right now. He's stirring your heart. Maybe it's in worship and his presence has been stirring your heart. Or maybe during the message, it's been provoking you to trust God in the supernatural part of Christianity. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you into himself. So if you say that's you, I'm not going to have you stand up or or come forward. Here's what I'm going to simply ask you to do. I'm going to simply ask you to slip your hand up so I can see you and I can pray for you. That you just slip your hand up right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? Wait just a second. If you did raise your hand, I'm going to pray. But as you leave that, if you'd stop by Connection Point and just tell them, hey, I raised my hand. I said that prayer of pastor. Just let them get you some gifts. We want to help you on your journey. But Father, we thank you for the blessing that your presence has been this morning. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for just who you are as a God that draws near to us. And for those that raise their hand, that, Father, you've been drawing towards you, I just pray right now that you cleanse them from all unrighteousness. You cleanse them from sin and shame and guilt and fear and worry. I pray that you wash them and make them white as snow. As they turn from their wicked ways, they turn to you. I pray that you restore them, you redeem them, help them be born again into your family with an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled, being kept for them by you in heaven. So Father, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,